A quick shout-out to listener Roy Clark, who took time out of his day to write a short review on Facebook. Five stars. I have been a Texas history buff all my life. Come and Take It has made my daily, hour-long commute on I-45 to downtown Houston so much better than listening to the radio, and I am learning about so many things in and about the Lone Star State. I have to recommend you guys to all of my friends. Roy Clark, Tomball, Texas. Thanks for listening, Roy. Thanks, Roy. Silly. Just knock them right out. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elbstrom. From taciturn champ to lovable pitchman, this native Texan's career included a break so long, it was longer than most people's actual careers. Today we're talking about Texas boxing legend, George Foreman. But first, what's your favorite item endorsed by a celebrity Texan? Uh, There's so many good options. Um, One that comes to mind is the uh, Mel Tillis shilling for Whataburger. But, you know, if I had to pick a favorite, it's probably one of the guys that uh, is selling their meat products. You know, Earl Campbell, Nolan Ryan, one of those. Not bad. I mean, I just, I drive. I drive a Lincoln. Just always have. (laughs) And I stare out windows for no good reason at all. Those commercials are so strange and surreal to me. I enjoy them, but I also like... I also love all the parodies people do of them. So I'm going to say the Lincoln MKX in black. Mm. As well, uh, endorsed and uh, spoken for by Matthew McConaughey. Mr. For McConaughey, those of you that man. Don't know. You just got to drive. See the road. <laughs> my, my birthday brother. Share the same birthday. Um, well, you know, Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, who's from San Antonio, will endorse anything. Uh, If you turn on the TV, he's literally on just about half of the commercials out there. But I'm going to go with anything that's endorsed by by Mesquite's own Burton Gilliam, uh, who was famous from the movie uh, uh, Blazing Saddles. And, uh, you know, he's the he's the guy that the 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 henchman for for uh, Slim Pickens. But uh, he's probably most famous otherwise for. Being the one to go New York City for the Pace Picotti. <laughs> True. Love love Burton Gilliam. And if Burton Gilliam's listening to our show, I would love to have him on our show because he is a bona fide Texas legend. We could just talk about Fletch for hours. <laughs> we could talk about Fletch. <laughs> While most people know him best for the grill named after him, George Foreman was an unstoppable force in the boxing world. After winning a gold medal in the Olympics, he went on to become a world champ and fight in perhaps the most famous match in history before retiring for 20 years. And when he came back, he was old enough to be most of his opponent's fathers, but he still managed to win the title again. He was born George Moorhead on January 10, 1949 in Marshall, Texas, which is in northeast Texas, and he was raised in Houston's predominantly African-American Fifth Ward neighborhood alongside six brothers and sisters. Young George actually took the last name from a man who'd raised him alongside his mother, his stepfather, J.D. Foreman. By his own admission in his autobiography, George was a, quote, troubled youth, and he ran with gangs that were growing increasingly common in the ward. At 15, he dropped out of school, but he later joined the Job Corps. It was in the Job Corps that he met boxing trainer Doc Broadus, who encouraged him to utilize his street fighting skills in the ring. Although he idolized football legend Jim Brown, Ford... 
Although he idolized football legend Jim Brown, Foreman gave up his gridiron dreams and took up the sweet science, which is boxing, for those of you who don't know. It didn't take long to realize that he had made the right choice. Foreman was an immediate success as a boxer. He won his first fight on January 26, 1967, knocking his opponent out in the first round. He won the San Francisco Examiner's Gold Gloves Tournament Junior Division and the Las Vegas Gold Gloves Senior Division just a month later. A year after, he won the San Francisco Examiner's Senior Title with another knockout. In March of 1968, he won the National AAU Heavyweight Title in Toledo. By July, Foreman had earned enough respect in the boxing world that he sparred with former world heavyweight champ Sonny Liston for five rounds on two different occasions. On September 21, 1968, he earned a spot on the United States boxing team for the 1968 Mexico City Olympic Games. He went into the games with a 16-4 amateur boxing record. Foreman won the heavyweight boxing gold medal fairly decisively in the final bout of the games. While it wasn't a knockout, he won the match against Soviet boxer Jonas Sepolis when the referee stopped the fight in the second round. Foreman had already bloodied Sepolis' face with the force of his punches in the first round, and the Russian had to take a standing eight count early in the second round. After winning the fight, Foreman celebrated by walking around the ring carrying a small American flag. Well, the next year, it was only natural for Foreman to transition from amateur to pro status. His size and power had been honed against the best amateur technicians in the world, and now he wanted to prove himself against the pros. He began his professional career with a bang, and won his first fight with a three-round knockout of Donald Walheim in New York. The rest of the year was just as stellar, and he won all 13 of his matches, 11 of them by knockout. Foreman proved just as dominant the following year. In 1970, he won all 12 of his matches, all but one by knockout. The only match he won by decision was against Gregorio Peralta at the famous Madison Square Garden. Although Peralta didn't win, he did discover Foreman's weakness to fast counterpunches, and he was able to hold out against the bigger, stronger hitting Foreman. Foreman continued his rampage the next year in 71, fighting seven more times and winning every one of them by knockout. This included a rematch against Peralta, where Foreman got revenge with a knockout in the 10th and final round. By the end of the year... Foreman had an amazing 32-0 record, 29 knockouts, and was ranked the number one challenger in the world. With this spectacular record behind him, Foreman was set to challenge undefeated and undisputed world heavyweight champion Joe Frazier. Frazier had traveled a circuitous route to get that belt, boycotting a title elimination caused by the vacancy when the championship was stripped from Muhammad Ali due to Ali's controversial stance on the Vietnam War. Frazier beat little-known Jimmy Ellis to win the held-up title and defended the title four times after winning it. One of those defenses was the, quote, fight of the century against the reinstated Ali, who had been previously unbeaten and was considered the real world champion. Despite having the advantage in both size and reach, George was a three-to-one underdog going into the bout against Smokin' Joe Frazier. <clears throat> Let me say that again. George was a 3-1 to one underdog going into the bout against Smokin' Joe. What would later come to be called the Sunshine Showdown occurred on January 22, 1973 in Kingston, Jamaica. Foreman won the championship by technical knockout after dominating the fight with his hard-hitting style. One of legendary announcer Howard Cosell's most memorable calls, Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! was made during the rebroadcast of the match by ABC, and in fact, Foreman knocked Frazier down six times within two rounds. 
After his victory, Foreman was often called an anti-social champion by the media, who were used to the bombastic exuberance of Ali and the friendly Frazier. According to writers of the time, he was always sneering and made himself unbelievable. According to writers of the time, he was always sneering and made himself unavailable to them. Foreman later claimed that his demeanor was an imitation of his former sparring partner and former champion, Sonny Liston, which was a tough air of superiority and dominance. Foreman defended his title twice in his initial championship reign. His first defense was against Puerto Rican heavyweight champion Jose Roman. Roman was not a top contender, and Foreman's victory proved why as he knocked out Roman in less than two minutes, which is one of the fastest heavyweight championship knockouts in history. Foreman's next title defense occurred in 1974 and was against a much tougher opponent. He faced future Hall of Famer Ken Norton, who had a 30-2 record. The fight was held in Caracas, Venezuela, and would come to be known as the Caracas Caper. Norton was well known for his awkward cross-arm style, crab-like defense, and heavy punching, and had even broken Muhammad Ali's jaw in a victory in 1973. Foreman and Norton's bout was balanced in the first round, but a minute into round two, Foreman caught his opponent with an uppercut that sent him stumbling into the ropes. Norton didn't go down, but was on shaky legs for the rest of the fight. Foreman didn't give him a chance to recover and put Norton down two times in quick succession, causing the referee to stop the fight. This win gave Foreman a whopping 40-0 record with 37 knockouts. In an interview years later, he said, Ken was awesome when he got going. I didn't want him to get into the fight. Foreman's next title defense would become one of the most famous boxing matches in history. The Rumble in the Jungle, which was promoted by legendary Don King, would pit Foreman against Muhammad Ali in the Central African nation of Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. However, while training for the bout, Foreman got a cut above his eye. The match was postponed for a month to allow George to heal, but the injury changed his training regimen, and he wasn't able to spar leading up to the fight because he couldn't risk reopening the cut. Foreman later said, quote, The best thing to happen to Ali when we were in Africa, the fact that I had to get ready for the fight without being able to box. Foreman was favored to win, having knocked out two big names who'd beaten Ali before, Joe Frazier and Ken Norton, those within two rounds each. Ali used the extra time, because of the delay, to train in the local climate and the tour Zaire, endearing himself to the local population, getting some good publicity, and taunting Foreman every chance he got. And when Foreman arrived, he remained aloof and distant from the people, and the two German shepherds that he brought with him were culturally insensitive to the Congolese, having been used during the colonial period by plantation owners to intimidate local workers. By the time of the match, Ali was clearly the popular hero, and Foreman was the villain. When the two men finally met in the ring, Ali was much more aggressive than predicted, and he outscored Foreman with faster punching. Ali changed his strategy in the second round, realizing that he would have to move much more than Foreman to keep up his pace, and that he would tire out. Instead, he went to the ropes, shielding his head unless he had an opportunity to score a good <clears throat> instead he went to the ropes, shielding his head unless he had an opportunity to score a good hit on Foreman. While Foreman was able to deliver vicious body blows, he couldn't land any big punches to Ali's head. The ring ropes were much looser than normal, a fact Foreman attributed to the interference of Ali's cornerman, Angelo Dundee, <clears throat> an accusation supported by Norman Mailer's book The Fight. The loose ropes let Ali lean away from Foreman's swings and then grab him behind the head, forcing him to wrestle his way free and waste energy. 
This tactic became known as the rope-a-dope, but it's not clear whether it was a tactic Ali intended from the beginning or it was just an improvisation he came up with because of the intense pressure that Foreman put on him in that fight. Whatever the case, Ali was able to deliver occasional counterblows from the ropes that slipped through Foreman's defenses and got to his face. Ali took heavy punishment to the body and a few jolts to the head, and in return later admitted that he was, quote, out on his feet twice during the bout. Still, Foreman tired first, and his punches got wilder and less powerful, while Ali grew more confident and taunted Foreman. Late in the eighth round, Foreman threw a haymaker that left him off balance, and Ali capitalized. A flurry of blows to Foreman's head culminated in a right cross that hit him square in the jaw and knocked him down and out. This made Ali the first man to ever knock out George Foreman. It was also the only time Foreman was ever actually knocked out in his professional career. Foreman later said, it just wasn't my night. He tried to get a rematch with Ali, but was never able to, and it's been suggested that the new champion avoided facing Foreman again. Foreman ended up taking 1975 off, but announced a comeback in 1976 with the stated goal of forcing a rematch with Ali. Foreman's first opponent on his road to that rematch was journeyman boxer Ron Lyle. At the end of the first round of that fight, Lyle sent Foreman staggering with a hard right. In the second round, Foreman came back and might have scored a knockout, but the bell rang a minute early. The fourth round degenerated into a slugfest with Lyle coming out ahead and knocking Foreman to the canvas. Foreman took Lyle down, but then was knocked to the canvas again with each man beating the count to get back to their feet. Foreman later said he'd never been hit as hard as he was in that match. In the fifth round, both fighters simply piled on the punches until, finally tired out, Lyle stopped. Foreman delivered a dozen unanswered blows that finally knocked Lyle out. The epic brawl went on to be declared fight of the year by The Ring magazine. Foreman chose a rematch against Joe Frazier as his next fight. He was heavily favored to win due to his previous victory and the fact that Frazier had been dealt a serious loss by Ali the year before. It was closer than expected, though, with Frazier able to avoid most of Foreman's hardest blows. Nonetheless, Frazier was knocked to the canvas twice in the fifth round, and the fight was called. Foreman then knocked out Scott Ledoux in three rounds and John Dino Dennis in four to finish in 1976. Foreman's first fight of 1977 also ended up with a knockout victory for him in four rounds. He flew into Puerto Rico only the day before his next fight occurred, not giving, him enough, un- not giving himself enough time to adjust to the environment. His opponent was a skilled boxer named Jimmy Young. Young had beaten Ron Lyle and fought a close enough bout the previous year with Muhammad Ali that it went to a controversial decision. Foreman fought cautiously early, but hurt Young badly in round seven. He wasn't able to land a finishing blow, though, and was notably tired the second half of the fight. George was knocked down in the twelfth round and eventually lost the fight, only the second loss of his career by decision. Foreman was ill after that fight, suffering from both exhaustion and heat stroke. His sickness was so intense that he had a near-death experience. He felt that he was in a hellish, frightening place of nothingness and despair. Although he was not religious, he prayed to God and sensed that God was asking him to change his life and his ways. He claims that when he said, quote, I don't care if this is death, I still believe there is a God, he felt a hand, put, he felt a hand pull him out of this pit and had the sense that he was suffering stigmata. Because of this experience, Foreman became a born-again Christian, dedicating the next decade of his life to God. While he did not formally retire from boxing, he gave up on fighting and became an ordained minister. At first, he just preached on street corners, but he became a reverend at the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in his hometown of Houston. 
He also opened up a youth center there to help kids who were growing up in the same environment that he did. Borman has and does share his conversion experience often on Christian-based shows like the 700 Club, and he often jokes that Young knocked the devil out of him. In his short career, George Foreman would have been remembered as a powerful, dominant striker with a taciturn attitude who ruled the boxing world in the period when Muhammad Ali was in exile. He probably would also have been well-regarded in the Houston area for being a native son who changed his ways and gave back to his community in a small but significant way. However, fate has a funny way of doing things, and after 10 years of retirement, George Foreman staged a remarkable, unlikely comeback that elevated him to the status of legend in more ways than one. And we'll talk about that in our next episode. Well, I gotta say, just talk about this episode. I mean, I don't know if you've ever gone back and, and seen pictures or any footage of, of Foreman fighting in his young prime, but uh, he was a scary dude in the ring. Yeah, I mean, he, he really... I mean, Mike Tyson... You know, when we were growing up, Mike Tyson was like the scariest person, the baddest man alive, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 then when we were young kids, you know, Muhammad Ali was the greatest. But George Foreman, you you go back and watch that film of him from the from the early seventies. That dude is scary. He is a monster because he is broad and he's got huge shoulders and those big arms, and he would just knock people silly, just knock them right out i mean that that was he was a knockout artist that was his deal you know he he knocked people the crud out Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. i think he was a he's a, a just a i mean it's it's a, a specimen of a man when you see like right. those early pictures he was so strong right and and the other the thing was is that he he didn't get flustered he didn't get upset he didn't get perturbed he just had he had a look. He walked in. He's that that bell rang, and he had a look, and he was going to tear you up. And that was it. He was not mad at you. He was not. He didn't hate you. He it looked like he hated you, but he looked like it was like cold. He was cold blooded. Um, if there is a fantastic documentary uh, called "When We Were Kings" about the Rumble in the Jungle, um, and it came out several years ago, but it's got. Uh, Foreman talk. I don't remember Foreman talks. But it was talk, they talked to Angela Dundee and they talked to uh, George Foreman's trainer. They talked to Norman Mailer. They talked to Don King. Talked to all these people in it, and it really goes into detail about everything that went into this amazing uh, fight. Uh, and the other thing is, if you watch the movie Ali with uh, Will Smith as Muhammad Ali, there that that fight is a major portion of that movie as well. Uh, well, I, I'll have to check that out then, because um, I can't really stand to watch boxing unless it's in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things, too. You look at, like, some of the speed that was unheard of. I mean, a lot of these, you know, just people being knocked out in less than a round or two is just not heard of. You know, these things tend to go the distance for a very long time. And it wasn't until, like like you said, from our youth when... You know, Mike Tyson came around that you just had somebody who just absolutely demolished every tomato can they put in front of them mm-hmm. and in the, the just super aggressive style. And I think that's the thing that Foreman is maybe overlooked a little bit in history because of his second later chapter. But you go back and see this stuff from his youth. You're just like, wow, that guy, he was a dangerous man. 
because and, yeah. and for for Muhammad Ali to be like, uh, I'm kind of frightened of this guy. <laughs> I don't really want to get back <laughs> in the ring with him if I can help it because, you know, I just don't know what's going to happen. That that should tell you something right there. But you know, it's a cool story too. At the end, that it was just like, oh, you know, he almost died and then found the Lord, and I'm just going to start a new chapter, which is probably going back to a lot of our early episodes when we talked about, you know, Texas is definitely a place for second acts. People tend to have people tend to have very big highs and then they come back and do something else great in Texas. It is a it is a second it is a second story kind of a state. Yeah, it is. And he had a hard life growing up, you know. He he grew up in a you know, he's born in in 1949, so he's the same age as my parents, and uh, you know, at the time, the you know, the Fifth Ward was deteriorating in social. You know, it was becoming a ghetto, for for lack of a better term. Although, you know, this the strong sense of community still did exist in in, in the ward, uh, but the gang, you know, there was crime increasing, and you know, that's that was part of life was you know, the gang life in the area. Um, in school, you know, he dropped out of school when he was 15 years old, you know, so, um, and, you know, he had probably three years, uh, that he needed to get something before he would be eligible for the draft. So, you know, he went into the job corps, uh, as at 16 and, and found a bit of a purpose. And from, from there, really the purpose that he found was in boxing. And that was his way out of life on the street and the way out of, you know, having to be drafted and possibly sent to Vietnam. So, um, and, you know, you, you talk, we, we just, we just finished the, the, the winter Olympics, but you know, the Mexico city games, he was very famous, famous bat bout and famous winning of his gold championship, uh, at the Mexico city games, um, bloodying that dirty Russian, you know, representing America. I know it's just seeing you go, wow, he was an Olympic athlete. You forget about that too. Like there's people who, yeah, I just, I, you don't even think about that about George Foreman. So that's really amazing. Well, and that was the standard way, especially for heavyweights. I mean, they preferred, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali was gold medalist of, in the in the Olympics. So it was really one of the preferred means of uh, of really finding good champions was uh, was to be have Olympic gold medal Olympic medalists. No, I know the Golden Gloves program did well. I'm not as old as you, Sean, so you know I don't remember all these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't alive for that too, but. But, you know, there's there's a lot of film of that 68 Olympics. <laughs> For those listening, Sean's a whopping six months older than me, so. <laughs> well, this is an exciting story. Uh, I highly recommend you if, you, if you love history, if you love sports, go on a, you know, go on a Google YouTube trip and go back and see some footage of the man and when he was young in his prime. Uh, check out some of those documentaries and films because wow George Foreman yeah. and also Texan yeah. gotta love when, it when, yep. we, when We Were Kings is, is one of the greatest documentaries I've ever seen uh, really should check that out fantastic we'll come back next week and we'll see the next chapter of George Foreman Frasier goes down Frasier goes down that wraps things up for today you can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. 
Why not follow us individually too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. Action, two ends. And I'm Scotticus. A big shout out to our good friend James Abendroth for helping to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. And if you like this show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come and take it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.